East Point, I've waited a long, long, long time to say this. Happy New Year! <laughs> it's refreshing, it, isn't it? it uh, the longest year, it seems like, in recent memory is finally over. I think we were all expecting watching on TV for that ball just to get, like, stuck like, you know, like, you know, one drop till or something like that, like the gears didn't quite work right or gravity stopped working or something like that, but it didn't. But I do have some bad news for you. The only thing that really changed was, was the calendar. Well, and, and how the Buckeyes played against Ohio State, or against Clemson. That, that changed a lot too, fortunately, right? Yeah, we're going to have a lot of people in church next Sunday uh, praying for that game probably. That's good. Uh, we, we have a tendency to make New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to ask for hands of how many of you did or didn't. I don't want to shame anybody. I didn't actually make them this year. Uh, but they tend to be exterior factors about our lives that we want to change. Um, the only thing that seems to be consistent is that we break them very well, don't we? We have all these external factors that, that, that are important, but at the same time, there's something more than just external factors about our lives that need to change, aren't there? I know when, when a person goes into the military, they go through basic training. And I know some of you have gone through basic training and can probably correct me if I'm wrong on some of this. But, but while they have like certain numbers they want you to meet, I want you to get this many push-ups in a minute, this many sit-ups, you need to run this far in this amount of time. The, at the end of the day, like, it's not about just hitting those goals. What they're trying to do is they're trying to create a new identity in you that's different than the one that you currently had. They're trying to take you from an identity where you would give up to an identity where you would keep going. And the same thing is true for us as Christians. The external factors are really just supposed to be a reflection of what's going on in, internally in our lives. We don't just change those external factors and get anywhere without focusing on what's going on internally. And this past year, we found ourselves more isolated, more separated, and more distant from people, both around us, both because of the pandemic and just because of the general division that's going on in our culture. And it's felt like we've been in exile. We've talked about this for the last several weeks. And so as we conclude the book of Revelation, we've talked about, well, what does it actually look like to get out of exile? And so today, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about that idea of exile. Because the reality is, is that as much as I'd like to say at the end of these four weeks that the virus would be gone, the reality is, is that's probably not going to happen, is it? And I'd love to tell you that here in another month that all the division that we've had in this country is going to be gone with the new inauguration. We all know that's not going to happen. It's probably be easier to get rid of the virus than it would to get rid of that division, wouldn't it? And so the reality is, is that getting out of exile is less about changing the external factors and more about finding a new identity for ourselves. Recognizing that our identity is not in the external factors that we can't control, but rather in the one thing that we can control, what's going on inwardly, and who we choose to center our lives around. 
We've all bought into the lies before that if I just had a little bit more of this, or if I could just go on vacation here, or if I just had a better job, or if I just had uh, this, this spouse, or if my kids would just stop doing this, like that my life would change. And the reality is, is that we only have limited control about those outside things, but the inside things is something that God can give us hope in the midst of. Think about God's people who have learned to thrive in exile type of conditions. Remember Joseph, not the father of G, or the husband of Mary, however that works. But Joseph, way back in Genesis, you remember arrogant young Joseph who was bragging to his brothers, ended up getting thrown in a pit and sold off as a slave and spent time in prison and everything else? Yeah, he found his identity in the midst of being separated from his family. Moses, before he ever led God's people out of Egypt, You remember what happened to him? He was out in the middle of the desert herding sheep. What happened? He came across the bush that was burning and yet not being consumed. He found his identity in I am. There's David, a man after God's own heart, surely, but it was some of those critical moments while he was on the run from his predecessor Saul, while Saul was trying to attack him and kill him. David found a deeper hope. God. Need I mention Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who wound up in a furnace and a lion's den and everything else going on? Your circumstances may not change, but where you find your identity, you can. And so as we begin this series called Out of Exile, what we're going to do each week is ask a question that we need to answer. And the first of these questions that I ask you this week is this. Where do I find my identity? Where do I find my identity as a person? Where do we find our identity as a church? Because the reality is is that we all know the answer is Jesus. But the problem is a lot more complicated than just giving it the Jesus answer, isn't it? How can I find my identity and truly build my identity in Christ? And it's fascinating because these passages that we're going to be looking at today in Revelation 13 and 14 are normally passages where we are asking the identity about somebody else. Normally, we find ourselves asking questions like, well, who is the Antichrist? Or what is the mark of the beast is what we often ask in these passages, which are important questions, I suppose. But really, this chapter 13 is setting itself up to be a paradox to chapter 14. They're setting it up to be a tension of places where our world is finding our identity versus the answer in chapter 14. So let's go ahead and dive in. And and just just some quick reminders. Hey, like some of this stuff with Revelation, uh, we got to get through it in a hurry. I don't have a lot of time to spend. We're going to have some differences of opinion in this stuff. And you know what? That's all right. But here we have it in verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So this is the sea beast that we see first. We're going to see a sea beast and then a land beast. If you look back to Job chapter 40 and 41, you're going to see that there was a sea beast and a land beast there. I think that John's building off those pictures that we saw there. Ultimately, both of those beasts were smaller than God. So are these beasts. 
But they mimic some of the things that Christ had about him or that the, the, the dragon had about him. Remember the dragon from New Year's Eve, that big inflatable yeah, red guy? We saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. This is a messed up beast, we'd say. Not going to win many beauty contests, this beast here. But this is setting itself up, again, to be a parody from what we saw, the creatures around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. This has different parts of those animals, but it's mixed together in this one beast. It's, it's, a, it's a parody. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, we think that the early church would have saw this to be Rome. Because Rome went through in the 60s, not the 1960s, nobody remembers those, but the 60s itself, the zero 60s, went through four emperors in four years, basically, and everybody thought it was going to be the downfall of Rome. But they ended up getting through it. And a lot of people say, well, that's what this mortal wound is. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given the authority to the beast. And if they worshipped the beast, saying, who else is like the beast? Or who is like the beast and who can fight against it? This isn't holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. This is who can stop the beast. And if you can't stop him, then you might as well join him. And that's the mentality that we see that goes into the worship of this beast. Is that there's nothing bigger that they can see that overpowers it so we might as well worship it. Is that not what's going on in our culture today? Well, I don't, I don't really think that way, but if I don't think that way, I'm going to be looked down upon. So I might as well at least say that I do. And the beast was given a mouth-uttering, haughty, and blasphemous words. This is a dirty mouth beast. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it from ev over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now remember in the book of Revelation, those who are the earth dwellers are set up as, as, as contradictory to those who find their hope in the Lamb, those who are washed by the Lamb. That, that's the difference here. But is you, isn't that troubling to hear the authority of the beast? Didn't we just read back in like chapter 6 and 7 that Jesus was given authority over every tribe and tongue and nation? Here we see that on earth it appears as if this beast has that authority. It appears that this beast can't be conquered. And yet we know it can. And it says... Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, that's who was worshiping it. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So here we have the sea beast, and its weapon is fear-inducing power. 
Again, I don't, I don't really care who you think that this beast might be. The reality is it's the same weapons that every beast from all eternity has fought with, isn't it? Fear-inducing power. Just to make you afraid enough to go along with its power instead of resisting, instead of standing firm the way that Christ stood firm at the cross. How do we overcome? We overcome, it says in the text, through endurance, faithful endurance specifically. Endurance and faith. How do we overcome the beasts that we face in this world? How do we overcome the satanic attacks? We endure. We are like the energizer bunnies of the faith. We just keep on going. We endure. We hang in there. We don't give up. And there's a reason endurance is right there with faith, because you cannot endure without faith. You can for a while, but you will just be a miserable mess. Trust me, I've tried it before. We need faith to endure. So that's the land, uh, sea beast. Now we're going to see the land beast. Chapter uh, 14, verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, because why not have more than one beast? It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it had some of the characteristics of Christ, but then it speaks like a dragon. It's not Christ at all, is it? That gives us a clue to what its trick is. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. It's a lot like what Elijah did, whether this is figurative or literal. It's the idea here of having the semblance of power that is unstoppable. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. There's that phrase again, the earth dwellers. Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and was allowed to give breath the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Ooh, there we have it. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of beasts. Get your calculators out. Are you ready? Here it comes. For the number of the man, and his number is 666. Sorry, my spooky voice didn't work the way I thought it would there. So here's what's going on here. We have the sea beast, or excuse me, the, and then now we have the land beast. And the land beast isn't so much about power as much as it is about deception. It's about lies. And how do we overcome the lies? We overcome them by wisdom. Do we not have deception going on in our culture as well? We, we are living in a world that has the death of truth around it. We, we are seeing that people say that it's not truth anymore, like God's truth, but it's just my truth and your truth. And we literally have people that say this all the time, like, oh, well, well that's, just, that's just your truth, not my truth. 
No, no, it's, it's whether it's true or not. It's whether it's God's truth or not that really matters. And so we overcome this by wisdom. And, and wisdom isn't going to come by your choice of a news station or my news station, okay? Wisdom is going to come from here. It, it's going to come from God's Word. And as we become a more post-Christian culture, we've got to understand that that's going to require us to become more biblically literate, to understand the Bible more. Because if, if we don't, like we're not going to catch it from our culture. We've got to be intentional about growing in God's Word. Amen? So, so just a few notes here before we move on. What is 666? Well, there, there's some pretty good theories out there that the early church would have recognized this to be Nero, because the emperor Nero, who was disastrous for Christians, uh, you know, if you... If you count his numbers, or count the letters in his name like you count numbers like they would have done in the ancient Greek and Hebrew culture, then you would wind up with 666. That's as good an explanation as any, but there's also this number. What's the most common number in the book of Revelation? Remember? Seven. It's a number of completion or wholeness, and time and time again we see that giving that, you know, basically that promise of God's seven responses through all these plagues and disasters and everything else. And so when we see the number 666, it's like it's almost to that point of seven, but not quite. It fails all three times to get there. It may be a beast, but it's not rolling any sevens at the casino here, okay? It's not that perfect number. It's not perfection. But it will deceive you to make it think it is and then just fall short of it. So when we, we, we look at these contrasts now, now let's look to the contrasting image to the earth dwellers, the, the earth dwellers who are being deceived by the dragon and by the two beasts. And now look to the contrast that it gives us here in the book. In chapter 14 it says, Then I looked and behold. And remember this word behold, it's the most common command that is given to us in the book of Revelation. And it says that because it's saying, and look, look, turn your attention now. I don't think it ever uses that word for Satan, maybe once or twice, but, but most of the vast majority of the time book of Revelation, it's getting your attention from where your eyes are to where your eyes should be. And it says, then I looked and look, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. You remember the lamb back in chapter 5? As it looking as if he had been slain, but he was standing and he was given the authority with the seven scrolls to open the seals of the seven of the one scroll, the seven seals, however it works. I'm getting my numbers confused. It's early in the year. Hope I don't do that on my taxes. And there he stands, but he's not standing alone this time. Who is standing with him? The 144,000 that we saw in chapter 6 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. You see, we spend so much time when people talk about the book of Revelation. Well, what's the mark of the beast? Well, what's the mark of the beast mean? Well, what's that? And I've heard crazy people say things like, well, if you get... Literally, we heard this. We had somebody tell us personally that if you get the vaccine for COVID-19, you just got the mark of the beast. Let me just say that's just that's absolutely asinine. Okay? That, that is a crazy statement. That's not medical advice. I don't give you medical advice. You should go to your doctor for that. 
But people saying that, literally saying, if you get the vaccine, you're going to hell, because that's what happens if people get the mark of the beast. It's absolutely crazy. Don't listen to people like that. Just walk away. You're not going to talk any sense into them, okay? But we spend so much time. I remember when I was growing up, people were opposed to barcodes. Can you imagine if the cashier had to punch in everything still at the grocery store? Can you imagine how crazy that'd be? And we'd beep, beep. That's the mark of the beep, apparently. Beep, beep. And it's like, no, we spend so much time talking about the mark of the beast that we forget to talk about the mark of a Christian. And the reality is, is if you have the mark of being a Christian, if you are marked by the Son through His blood, you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast because if you're faithful to Christ, you will not fail in this. And, and we talk about all these things. We like to go down pipe dreams and it sells a lot of books and everything else. Ooh, what's the mark of the beast? The reality is, worry about Christ and focus in on Him. And that's what happens here because church... We ask that question, where do you find your identity? And the truth is, is that we find our identity in the Lamb. We find our identity in the Lamb who was slain, but yet is standing because He overcame sin at the cross, and then He overcame death at the grave, at the tomb. And He is standing here in our midst, and the same promise is true for us, that we overcome sin when we die to sin at the cross of Jesus and are forgiven of the sin by His blood. And we overcome death when He someday comes and calls our name. When we receive resurrection, we find our identity in the Lamb. So how are we to live as the Lamb's chosen people? Now I have a few things we need to get here real quickly, so we're going to fly through these pretty quick, okay? We find our identity in the Lamb. How do the Lamb's people choose to live? I think it's going to be no surprise to say it's, in, it's, it's contradictory to how people lived in, 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 as earth dwellers, okay? Here's what that looks like. First, verse 2 and 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. This is like the voices they hear from heaven throughout the book. It's clear. This isn't about, about the fear that, that is imposed by the beasts. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. It was a new song because it was a song of redemption. And before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except 144,000, which again, it's figurative number. That was a huge number back then. Who had been redeemed from the earth. The first thing we do as the Lamb's people is that the Lamb's people live worshipfully. The Lamb's people focus ourselves on the worship of God. Now, that doesn't just mean that we show up on Sunday morning so that we, we tune in online every Sunday morning. What it means is that we live lives of worship. Sunday mornings are a vital part of that. But, but it's not just a, a one-day affair here. This is about centering our lives and leading lives of worship. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about uh, living our lives as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, this is your spiritual act of worship. What we see here is that the Lamb's people live worshipfully. They are sold out to God and God alone. Verse 4, it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Next, we see that the Lamb's people practice sexual purity. This is something that was very distinct about the ancient church 
living in a pagan Roman culture. People talk about like the sexual revolution, like things like that have never happened before in history. Let me just say it's just a repeat. It's just a repeat over and over again with slightly different language. People throughout history have, have lived in sexually immoral ways. That's human nature. It happens. God's people are to live in sexual purity. We're to live lives holy and pleasing. We recognize that our bodies aren't merely sexual objects, as what our culture is trying to sell us today, but our bodies are holy temples unto God. Next, second half of verse 4, it says, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The Lamb's people are loyal to the Lamb. Where He leads, I will follow. It's not just a good hymn. It's a truth that is about us. As God leads us into some of the most bizarre places to do some things that just seem counterproductive to our nature because we are living sacrificial lives, we follow Him. We follow Him and live our lives as holy sacrifices. And finally, in second, third half of verse 4 and verse 5, these people have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Did you notice the language of the beast was blasphemous? The language of God's people is blameless. The Lamb's people are people of integrity. We're people who are people of integrity, not because we've put on these things from the outside, but because Christ has transformed us from the inside out. We are literally supposed to be oozing with integrity. In a world where truth acts like it's dead, or where we act like truth is dead, we need to be that refreshing voice of truth and grace that comes from Christ. Last year, I spent um, a year teaching at Nebraska Christian College. It was, it was a great delight. I, I deeply enjoyed it, even though the year was shortened by COVID and eventually the school wound up uh, permanently closing. But one of my good friends, he'd been, I'd known him from seminary. He taught in the office right next to me, and his name's Mike Cahill, and um, he literally was just one of the reasons it was such a joyous occasion for me to go there. Um, but Mike, he was the most challenging professor on staff. I was not. He was the most challenging professor on staff. He would push the students to their limits. He wanted them to excel in every discipline. But do you know how he ended every class? And do you know how he ended every meeting that he had with a student in his office? He would not let students leave class or his office until he looked them in the eye and said, you are loved. You are loved. And at first I thought, well, well, that's cute. But as we went through COVID and the school shutting down, what we saw over and over is that, is that the students responded to that and craved that affirmation. They longed to remember that it's not about performance. It's not about putting things on the outside of us, but it's about remembering that first 
and foremost, we are loved. Church, that's where we find our identity at. Just like Romans 5, 8, I believe, says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Out of his great love for us. Church, so I ask you that question today. Where do you find your identity? My hope is, is that you don't find it in anything you can do with your own two hands. That you don't find it in any of your accomplishments or in any of your failures. But church, may we find our identity in this. That you and I are loved unconditionally by the Most High God. The God that would lay down His life. The God who would give us victory over sin and death. You are loved. May we never forget it. And may it be the first words to roll off of our tongues through our actions and words to everyone we meet. You are loved. Father, um, it doesn't seem complex. It doesn't seem all that hard to understand. And yet, uh, I have trouble believing it myself some days that you would love me. And, and, and I know that there are people here this morning that are having trouble believing that too. So, Father, I pray that you would just replay that message, put that phrase on repeat in our minds, that we find our identity in you. Because you love us. We are loved. May we live out that sacrificial love in everything we do. May we not succumb to the fears or the deception of the beasts. But may we stand with you on Mount Zion. And may we know that we are there only because we are loved. But that that love is never going away. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.